0: We've been on a mission recently to introduce you to a handful of female fighter pilots. Some, like Samantha Combo Weeks and Sharon Betty Presler, were first in their fields. Combo in the Thunderbirds, Presler, a fighter pilot pioneer. Today, we're talking to Vanessa Siren Mahan, and we get real about her service the good moments and those that are heavy and need to be talked about. We're hopping into the backseat of an F 15 on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Lieutenant Colonel Mayhan, welcome to Pick Up the Six podcast. How are you? I'm good, Brian. Thanks for having me. Excited. Uh, as we've been saying, sort of keeping this ongoing series going uh, that kicked off with Casey Campbell months ago at this point, uh, but what has been a really neat chance to have some cool conversations with female fighter pilots uh, and, uh, and part of that Athena's Voice Network that Tammy Barlett has going. And so I'm just thrilled to have this one. We've got some neat Things in common, uh, places you've been, places I've been. That'll be cool. We'll talk through that, but also just thrilled to kind of keep this thing going. What our viewers can't see is your flight suited up. So you're ready for today, which is awesome. Ready to go. (laughs) That's right. All right, let's get to know you a little bit as we're apt to do here and dig in. And We're going to talk about your Air Force career, time spent in aircraft, in Air Force jets, In some Navy jets, I think, too, which is a a neat thing. So how'd you end up down that road? How'd you end up to life in the Air Force?
1: Well, first, let me say that all the ladies you've had on so far are just heroes of mine. I love them. They're amazing. They're just such good people to talk to and have as friends, especially um, from somebody who has not Been the one to blaze the path, Mm. but to follow in their footsteps. So I really, really um, have loved getting to know them over the years of service. So, yeah, Yeah, that's cool. My story starts as a young lass in a small town in Indiana. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So my dad was military. Uh, My parents were divorced, but he was a Vietnam vet. And as a kid, I remember seeing his medals and ribbons displayed above his desk, but it was never really something that I thought about joining the military. He was also really big into aviation. So he would take us flying in a friend's Cessna. In fact, one time I remember, gosh, I was probably 13 and he was building a house and we flew over the neighborhood and he's like, hey, watch this. And you know, something always good. Yeah. Follows the watch, this statement. So I'm I'm in the front seat, in the co-pilot seat. And there's another house being constructed. And he ends up diving down as close as he can get. And the construction guys turn and they look up and they start running. (laughs) (laughs) And I just remember him pulling back up and just laughing so hard. So that was a very fond memory of... My one, dad and I, one my sister. That one seems like uh,
0: not exactly street legal. Maybe on no. that kind of. Maneuver. No, it
1: probably isn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it sure was fun as a kid. Like I didn't know any better. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. But the other pivotal moment in my life that I didn't realize until probably my late 20s was he took us to the Oshkosh Air Show, and as you know, that is a very big air show. Lots of planes everywhere. Met lots of people. But most of the pilots that I saw were dudes. Mm -hmm. And my dad, obviously a dude. I'm like, okay, cool. So I just kind of walked around not ever thinking that that was something that I could see myself in. Now, I had heard of Patty Wagstaff, and she was out there that year. But she was the anomaly. And I walked by this booth called Women Fly. And I saw that iconic photo of the four pistol-packing mamas walking away from their B-17. And it was like the clouds parted and the rays of light shone upon that picture. And I was like, oh, women served as aviators in the military? And It was so profound to me. I bought that shirt. That was the one thing I got to buy there. And I wore that shirt until it was shreds. And that's just where the seed planted. So later on in high school, I was like, okay, how do I get to, how do I get to college? How do I go away to college? Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad's like, what about an ROTC scholarship? I'm like, uh, I don't know anything about that, but if they wanna give me money, cool. And they did. So I got a four-year scholarship to Purdue to study meteorology. And I'm like, well, let's give this a go. It turned out to be awesome. So I went in with the attention intention of, hey, I need money to pay for school. The military is going to pay for me. I left loving the military and the Air Force and everything about it. Man, I ate it up. I love the people. These folks, they were my tribe. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. So much growth happened during that time. So that is kind of my origin story to how I joined the military.
0: When you graduated from Purdue, did you commission into the Air Force on graduation day? And then you know, right. I'm, I'm doing the math in my head, right? It's it's not that far removed. It's only five or six years from Presler and those the, the trio of ladies that get to go fly in combat, right, that say, we're going to put you in fighters. We're going to even put you into combat. So there's not, I mean, that's not a huge chunk of time in the scheme of things. between not in 98, right, when you're when you leave in Purdue?
1: So I graduated high school in 98. I graduated Purdue in December of 2002. So by that time, everything was wide open. And Mm -hmm. as you know, (laughs) September 11th happened when I was in school and gosh, I was ready to go. I'm like, I am in the right place, but I want to go now. And I had to tell myself to be patient because I would have that opportunity. And There was enough years that passed that I knew I could have the opportunity in a fighter aircraft. Now, what hadn't changed yet was the whole eyesight corrective surgery thing. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of that last year group where corrective surgery was still kind of iffy and I wasn't really willing to take the chance. So when I went through my quals, I knew I wasn't pilot qualified, but I was able to get a waiver for some other medical issues and get qualified to be a WIZO. And that's what I wanted to do. So I was 100% in and I thought it would be such a cool job. So I was all on that.
0: Yeah. So your path post-college is to then get into fighter aircraft and the WIZO is the weapons system operator, right? And so depending on the aircraft, it kind of depends on where you sit, you know, you ended up being slotted for the F-15 Strike Eagle, which in the Jodas family is a near and dear aircraft. Uh, and the fact that you flew to Seymour Johnson, we'll talk about that in a moment, adds another fun <laughs> element to it. So post-college, um, uh, pilot training, fighter jets, what's that journey for you look like? And then tell us a little bit about what that role is, right, in that aircraft. What's your Rizzo doing?
1: Yeah. So I, I went to flight school. I went to Joint strike undergraduate navigator training (laughs) that's a mouthful Mm -hmm. at nas pensacola and you know we started something that's training with the navy so we started in something called api aerospace pre-flight indoctrination we got to do all the navy survival swim stuff which was it was cool it was um very interesting to do that so i I go in this wide-eyed young second lieutenant like ready to do what I've been waiting to do for the entire time I was at Purdue. And man, it was not what I expected. Mm. (laughs) So it was a bit eye-opening. So I, I leave Purdue and I'm just on this amazing high of, like it was so successful, had such great friends. I show up to flight training and it's uh, how can I put this delicately toxic?
0: Mm. Yeah,
1: it it was not the most conducive or compatible place for a female. And that for the first time ever, I felt like I was being looked at differently because I was a female there. Mm. And there were a couple of things like you either got there because they needed to fill some kind of quota or you got there because you slept with somebody, or you're sleeping with the instructors to pass. Like, that just was very crushing to Mm -hmm. me that that was my perspective as a student going through and all the rumors I would hear about all the female students and I'm like, what, where am I? What is this place? Like what happened to like all the camaraderie and teamwork and everything? It was really, really hard. On top of that, I had medical issues with trying to clear my ears. So I had finally, they they, they called it eustachian tube dysfunction, whatever that means. What it felt like was knives stabbing into my ears on almost every ascent and descent. Mm. So I had a hard time. Critical
0: moments in being in an aircraft, right?
1: Right. And super painful. I mean, remember sometimes just holding my helmet and rocking and trying to focus and still talk because my head felt like it was going to explode. So on top of how painful it was to fly, combined with how toxic the environment felt it just it was so hard it was so hard to get through and not what I expected did
0: you did you feel the urge on the toxicity thing right to fight back on that to push back on that did you see it change at all in the time that you were there
1: so at that time I did my best to fly under the radar I Mm -hmm. just wanted to blend in yeah. And looking back on it now, I am disappointed that that's the attitude that I took, but man, I was in survival mode, <clears throat> excuse me. And that's where, that's where I felt. I didn't feel like I had any support or there's, <laughs> I felt alone. Like nobody mm-hmm. I could turn to, to discuss those things. And so I, I flew under the radar and just wanted to make it through.
0: Do you think things have improved in that space since then?
1: You know what? So I, I want to say yes. And I do think that I speak truth when I say that, because there has been this huge movement towards that diversity and inclusion. Um, I know those are buzzwords in the military right now, but there's so many of us who have experienced shit. hmm in our past that maybe it took us a few years like it took me i was sexually assaulted during that flight training it took me 10 years over 10 years to actually tell somebody that that happened but i i feel like there is so much more support now because of you know people like me who have gone through that who you know at some point it kicks in where you're like I am not going to stand by and let that happen. So after that happened to me, I was I I advanced to a squadron called VT eighty six. So that was advanced training. And at some point, you're like you get your aircraft, and that's where I got the F fifteen E. So we were all in the bar celebrating. It was a great time. And then I had one more instructor come up to me. And and if you see the flight suit, you know it's got zippers everywhere, which is awesome. Well, we have some zippers that are right along the chest and sometimes the tab of the zipper sticks out. And so we call those speed breaks, but I didn't know it at the time. So this male instructor flicks that zipper, which is on the chest and says speed breaks out. And that was the pivoting moment for me where I just lost it internally. Externally, I kept it cool Mm -hmm. because that's how I thought I was supposed to be. When I left that and I got to my car, I gripped the steering wheel and I just exploded And I made a promise to myself that I would never let anything like that happen to me again. As months went by and I went to Seymour Johnson, that bubble of protection expanded to all the other women around me. So I was the only female for the most part in almost every squadron or flight that I was in. But I would still hear those rumors about the other women. And I would do my best to counter that or to stand up for them and, and just pose questions like, well, how do you know that's true? Or what about the guy? It, just, just to give them something, something else to think about besides the rumors, because mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than showing up to a squadron and people have heard air quotes, all about you without you even getting a chance to make a name for yourself, whether good or bad. So that was, that kind of became my mission. Although I never really told people that or what happened to me in the past, I felt like it was my job to kind of protect those who came after me at that point. And It's crazy because I wasn't the first one to go through. So at some point I had thought, I'm like, gosh, if I experienced all that shit, what did everybody who went in front of me experience? It's just kind of boggling when you stop and and think about it.
0: I'm grateful that you're uh, willing to speak about it and have this conversation. And quite frankly, folks are probably listening they might be a little uncomfortable. And you know what? It's okay to be a little uncomfortable (laughs) because you need need to think about um, challenges that have been placed before those who have gone before and what you've had to endure. And while you still wear the uniform today, right? Love of country, right? Deep pride, sense of commitment. It doesn't mean that it didn't come with uh, internal challenges, right? And you expect, right? You expect challenges from the enemy externally, but there are, not everything's always hunky-dory and this great, right? rah-rah moments coming through that. Uh, and it's given you the platform to serve and, and live that life of service, but it doesn't mean that you didn't have internal challenges. I think it's important to focus on that. And I know what you've worked to do is, how can I turn that into these other things? How can I continue to support those that could be going through similar scenarios? And even just thinking, or even just taking time to talk about it, I think it's important too. Some folks can listen back, you know, I need that perspective. I need to think
1: through that. A
0: little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: I, I do. It um I want to help. I want to make a difference. And that's why I decided to share that story and actually start talking about it. And when Athena's voice came about, I remember talking to Tammy and saying, please make me part of this team. I have mm-hmm. a message I want to share to let a, people know that if they've experienced, they're not alone. B, like fight against it and C, support folks that if they see stuff like that happening to step in and not be afraid to do it. Right. Learn from That's my right. mistakes That's right. and my hardship and that dark place that I went to. So hopefully that doesn't happen to you. And the more I share the story, the more men have come up to me. Mm-hmm. You know, civilian men or military, both, who have said that they experienced sexual assault, too. Maybe not in the military, but at some point in their life. And it really opened my perspective, too, that it's, of course, it's not just a female thing. But hearing these guys tell me their experience as well, it struck something inside me even more that it is a humanity thing. And then naturally made me think of my own son. I have a daughter too, so I always thought of her, but made me think of my son too. That I don't want him to experience anything like this. So it really is a it needs to be a non-gendered thing mm, yeah. that we talk about that this and then we're comfortable talking about it and we're comfortable stopping it. Yeah. Regardless of Who's doing the action, male, female, superior, subordinate, whatever it is.
0: I think if you don't talk about it and confront it and take it head on, it's easier not to stop it. Right. And so what you want to do is have these conversations. So then people in that moment have the confidence to say, no, that's not right. The last thing you want to do is look back on a a moment like that, an interaction or something that you even just witnessed and say, oh man, I should have done something about that. Right. Because it might be too late, right? The injustice might've already happened. That's incredible. Can I pivot to some flying? And I'm so glad we yeah. got into that level, right? And thankful for that because that's a heavy, it's a heavy topic.
1: Right? It's super heavy. Yeah, let's talk about fun stuff. No, it's all good. No,
0: it's all good. It's important. It's critically important. This might not be super fun, but it's a part of your story. Deploying in a combat zone, the mm-hmm. first time that you go into that, and quickly before we do that, so you're in the F-15, right? Strike Eagle, elite fighter in the Air Force. That thing's going into combat in the Middle East all the time. In the time that you're in the air force you've got the pilot up front you've got the wizzo in the back seat the wizzo yes. is like we said the weapons system officer you got the guns right tell us a little bit about what that role's like
1: i like to say i got the bombs
0: you got the bombs <laughs> that's right that's right the Good big bombs. the big heavy the heavy
1: yes right. yes so um our role in the back seat is so it varies for for every platform so i'll talk about the strike eagle specifically our role of course, there's always crew coordination to back up the pilot. Um, but we, we do the weapon systems. We do the planning. We are the experts when it comes to the bombs. Uh, each role that we fly, like OCA, offensive counter air, defensive counter air, BFM, close air support, all those things we have different jobs to do. So I'll talk specifically about close air support because that's, that was our mission when we yeah. deployed for Operation Enduring Freedom. I love CAS. I know some people might think it's not the most exciting thing, but I love it so much because as a backseater, that was my bread and butter. I was the person who was talking to the JTACs on the ground and writing down the nylon and putting those coordinates in the weapon and working my targeting pod. To find the target area or yeah. to yeah. scope out what's going on on the ground. Hey, real
0: quick, the guys on the ground, because I want to. We had uh, we had Thad Forrester on the show. His brother Mark was an Air Force special operator who was killed in combat in Afghanistan. And so I, I believe he's the guy, the kind of guy that's on the ground that basically is like put in these special ops scenarios to go find where targets are, communicate with you guys, and when you're talking about close air support, that's when you're coming in and we're putting strikes in. Is that a pretty fair assessment of how all that goes down?
1: Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, so they're they're amazing. I have such, every time I meet a JTAC or a ground controller that can pass us a nine line, man, I just, Mm -hmm. I have this invisible camaraderie with them because I know the work that we do together can be just life, literally life or death. Yeah. So yeah. talking with them and coordinating all that stuff, uh, they just hold a special place in my heart because of the work that we did in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So does that kind of sum up? No, it does. <laughs>
0: the first time you go into that, right, the first time you're you know, downrange, flying over combatant territory, what's that experience like?
1: It's nerve wracking because you don't want to mess up Mm. and you've been practicing for months and months and you've taken years to get to this point. So your first combat sortie, you, you rely on that muscle memory, your hands just do their things. The way you buckle into the seat, the way you set up your radios, it's very muscle memory with you know maybe some hands shaking while you're doing it because you're nervous and you go out there and you're you are doing your job you're going to do your job and the, the squadron i was in the chiefs which were can i put this the best squadron the best
0: ever. Yeah, i mean listen the leading mig killers to date all right right <laughs> and then we both have an affinity and if you remember the episode with john quartz and then you go all the way back to well, my dad's been on the show a few times. He was a squadron commander uh, for the Chiefs, was also the uh, the wing commander for the fourth fighter group as well. So that 335th uh, chief fighter squadron, and you guys have heard on the show, right? Very important to us. Uh, once a chief, always a chief. And he did say, hey, find out from her what her chief nickname was too, because I want to know <laughs> on top of Siren with a chief nickname, because DICE was also Snake Eyes once he okay. got into the chiefs. So yeah. you can either tell yeah. me that online or offline it's totally your call. <laughs>
1: Wampum. Okay. Wampum,
0: that's right. Yeah.
1: Um, best squadron ever. So they did a a fantastic job of crewing us with somebody who was previously combat experienced. Mm -hmm. So my pilot was combat experienced, but we were number two on my very first flight. Oh, no, we were number one. We were flight lead. And we deployed in January, which in the wintertime in Afghanistan is typically kind of quiet, but we actually dropped bombs that day. And to drop a bomb on your very first combat mission is pretty incredible and exciting and all that nerve wracking, like double checking to make sure your coordinates are correct, mm-hmm. making sure we've talked with a JTAC and all your ducks are in the row. So, to speak, it, I have very fond memories of, of that. And I actually, it's been years, but I actually got to see number two, Wizzo, who was older than me and more experienced at the time. We actually worked together for about six to nine months um, at Hurlburt. So it had been years since I saw Mm -hmm. him. So it was good to see him and kind of reminisce during all this like COVID thing as, you know, sometimes our our jobs take us all different places in the military. So we kind of lose track of some people, but it was awesome to see him. My very first combat sortie wingman.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. You've got, you definitely have a bond in that, right? Something that you, obviously remember and you're able to, to talk about it later, ends with uh, two deployments. Uh, you've got an interesting sort of transition in your Air Force career where you end up flying with Navy folks and flying some Navy aircraft. And you, you talked about doing that pilot training experience early in your career with that Navy crossover. Then it sort of kind of comes back circle at the end. What was that experience like? You're flying, I think it's the E-86B, better known as the Growler. So tell so me a little E86- bit about
1: that. EA-6B Prowler. 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 Yes.
0: I yeah, might beer on the brain.
1: And... <laughs> <laughs> so the growler is a, the EA-18G. Okay. okay. So, so
0: kind of close. Yeah.
1: So yeah, That's yeah, you you got it. Yeah. Um, it. It's funny because at that time, I, it's like, gosh, can I have more Navy time than Air Force time? Right. As an right. Air Force right. person, it, right. it was bananas. But when you end up, Marrying a Navy guy, you kind of get roped into some assignments that maybe you think you weren't mm-hmm. going to do. So that's why I took that job. And I was the last Air Force Prowler class to go through Whidbey Island. I did it because obviously my husband was up there too. He's a Prowler Grawler guy. And so uh, since my roots were in naval aviation, it kind of felt comfortable to me, except for when they told me, "Hey, Siren, we're getting rid of all the exped prowlers, so you're gonna go on a carrier." I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Yeah, Air Force, yeah, land-based yeah. carrier? What?" So that that was a pretty. Um, Pretty amazing experience. I ended up being assigned to the B- BAQ 133, the Wizards, also amazing squadron. And we were doing workups on the Stennis. Okay. And it was very eye opening to be on the Stennis for about three weeks doing those workups and just seeing carrier deck ops and living. Essentially you feel like you're living underground because in the ship Mm -hmm. there's no windows anywhere and just the smells and that whole process of Navy life was just thrown on you. And I was a a captain at the time. So it was kind of fun to answer the phone, Captain Mahan, (laughs) because in the Navy a captain's captain's a big
0: yeah, Captain's a big deal.
1: Yeah. Hey, the first uh,
0: the first time you get rocketed off the carrier what was that like
1: so we had some experience in the rag which is the training squadron mm-hmm. to to do that and it's it's pretty exhilarating to just get launched and but being being the professionals that we are like I'm super focused that we have two positive rates of climb Because if you don't have that, you are pulling instantly. And that's kind of um, the eye opening. So it's, it's just, it's just amazing that feeling. Now, what's even more amazing is when you take a trap and you forget to lock your seatbelt and then you get a face full of dash.
0: Uh So that's when you're (laughs) coming in, right? You got to land on that carrier. They basically hook the back, right? You get, I mean, it's Uh a whole thing. My my simpleton brain of explaining it is much more as detailed than it would be. But yeah, I mean, that, cause that thing's catching you.
1: Yeah. It it's catching happen. you and you are, you're slamming onto the deck. So if you ever see how fast are maybe, you coming in? Oh gosh. Ask me my approach speed. Why do you gotta do that to me?
0: <laughs> you can totally make uh, something up and there are a handful of people listening that'll know for yeah, sure. But everybody yeah. else will pretty much go along with it. Yeah, 150,
1: knots, sure, 150 knots.
0: Sure. <laughs> But to go I can't to, remember. To go, but basically, to go from that to zippy
1: is right crazy. Yes, yeah. so it, it's a crash landing. It's it's a big hard pull back, and when you land, you're like, oh sweet baby Jesus, we made it. Especially when you're doing it at night, and mm-hmm. the Prowler is not the easiest aircraft to land on the carrier. Not that I'm the one flying it, but it, when I'm sitting in the co-pilot seat, I'm like, come on, buddy, you got this. You know, That's right. doing. That's right doing the crew coordination that you're supposed to do not like pep talk or whatever but luckily I was with an experienced pilot his call sign was Bozo he's awesome so shout out to Bozo, Bozo
0: yeah.
1: uh, he's awesome guy but I really appreciate his expertise landing so he made it look real easy but awesome experience if anybody ever has a chance to to experience that go for it I would not I still would not join the Navy though mm-hmm. um, because my husband ended up doing a 10 month deployment and gosh, I cannot imagine doing 10 months on the ship, but it's, whole like, a whole, story it's like a whole,
0: I mean, it's like a whole world happening
1: out there. Honestly. It, it, it it's is. Incredible. It's a whole little mini city happening out on the ocean. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's what commander Lippold and I used to chat quite a bit about you guys remember he was the first episode of this show and he talks about the experience on the coal. and yeah, I mean, it really is. You, you've got an entire little city that's happening, all in that uh, in that space, it's it's pretty incredible. With the time we have left, let's talk about after ten years in the Air Force, family comes online, the transition out of active duty, and uh, and what you're up to now, and and uh, and what your this next phase, your next mission in life is all about.
1: Yeah, so a um, couple of kids on active duty and a Navy husband it complicates things. So. It was a really hard decision for me to punch out of active duty, but I'm really, really so thankful for the reserves that it still gave me the opportunity to serve my family and serve my country. Mm -hmm. So I ended up leaving active duty at about 11 years, joined the reserves as an air operations officer it, and I went to SOCPAC. So for my whole conventional career on active duty, now I'm suddenly working with special forces. So that was a whole nother language to learn, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it was a really great experience. So I, I love my time at SOCPAC in Hawaii. And that was just part time. It really gave me an opportunity to support my family and kind of explore some other things in my life that I don't think I would have had the chance to, like starting my own functional fitness business, which is super fun to do. Um, now I work at Hurlbert. I'm an instructor for the Air Operations Center in the Combat Plans Division, teaching electromagnetic warfare to all kinds of students that come in, joint coalition, from the brand new baby enlisted to O6s mm. that come in. So have that kind of impact to be in front of lots of students that will be basically deployed to locations around the world.
0: Incredible. There's a couple of places folks can likely find you and I'll tell them that. And if there's anything else I'm forgetting, let me know. Obviously Athena's voice, uh, we would have you recommend you go there. If you're like, man, love what I'm hearing out of Siren today. would like to have her come maybe speak to our company, organization, group, right? There's some opportunities there. Siren Strong. .com, right for the health right. and wellness elements. What else am I forgetting?
1: Um, I would love to put in a plug for Wings for Val. I know we did. Yeah, do that, please. Absolutely.
0: That. Yeah, let's do that.
1: But Val was one of my students in the Prowler. Um, her crew, they, um, they died during a sortie, but her family and such, so amazing decided to carry on her legacy and encourage women to keep flying. So they started this foundation called Wings for Val and they fundraise, they give scholarships out for women to earn their PPL. So just, just an amazing story. Look at their website, support them too. We're all about bringing aviation to the next generation and Wings for Val is a great place to do it.
0: Before we go in in that moment, I mean, that's got to be, if not one of the most, or maybe the most challenging experience of your career to have to go through a scenario like that. You know, when you lose a student, um, when my dad was commander at NGEP, uh in Wichita Falls, Texas, they lost a few student pilots in an, in an in-air collision. Um, to have to experience that, it can't be easy. To see the positivity that's come on the back end of that, what, what is, just tell me a little bit about that experience.
1: Well, it, when you're in this business long enough, you you're going to lose people. And it's it it's never easy. It is so heartbreaking. There are literally there's not words to describe that feeling that you get when you hear that an aircraft went down. Just devastating and and you know, your mind thinks about the families and the spouses and the kids and then you go home and you think about your own kids and family and what if you were in that jet and it's just this crazy like mishmash of feelings seeing like personally seeing the other crew come back from that having lost their wingman like I will never forget the looks on their faces and it's just it's it's burned and people who have gone through that experience know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. But to have a family, to see people move on from that, have spouses remarry, kids get new parents, families move on and make something good out of it like Wings for Val is just so inspiring. It's one of the most inspiring things I think I've ever seen in my life for people to move past that kind of tragedy and it makes me really appreciate what I do, even mm-hmm. with the losses that it, we experience, to see humanity come together and then not lose hope as hard as it is for them to kind of relive that on that day that it happens every year. But to bring goodness out of it too, is, is it's so inspiring. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful to be around people that can overcome those tragedies. Yeah.
0: It, it, those are moments where hearing those stories or being around that in, in what sometimes feels like a very broken world, which part parts of it are to, to restore some faith in, in humanity and how people can make good out of tragedy. I, I, I mean, I'll ask you why we're live. I'd love to have uh, somebody from that organization or a family member come on and share their story, talk about the impact they've had. Some of the lies that have been changed through those scholarships. So if you and I can connect on that and
1: maybe yeah, see if that's absolutely. a conversation
0: we have in the future, because I think it's important. One of the things I love to do here is find organizations like that, that maybe folks haven't heard of before. Guys, right. Cause maybe that moves somebody and they want to contribute and donate. That's w- Wings Is there a website? Is that right?
1: Yeah.
0: And I'll, and I'll confirm that we'll put it in the show notes. No worries. We'll make sure we have it all squared away. You guys can easily absolutely. just go to whole Wings for Val and go check them out. We'll get them on the show too.
1: Exactly. We'll yep.
0: so, Aaron, this has been uh, a, a heavy conversation at times.
1: Fun too, but
0: that's what we gotta do, right? We lean in and we do yeah. that. Uh and I'm just so grateful for all that you've done for our country, all that you continue to do. And uh and it's been a fun time today.
1: Thank you, Brian. You honor me. Absolutely. She
0: is Lieutenant Colonel Vanessa Siren Mahan. I'm Brian Jodas, and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.